Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you all today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Blythe. And I'm Matt. And uh, if you're new here, we aren't normally the faces that you'll see up here during this point in the gathering. Um, hi, Kyle. <laughs> um, sorry. Uh, We've been at Artisan for about six years now, and it's a real treat to get to speak to you today at this point, though, about something that we do really love talking about and thinking about, and that is film. But first, why film? <laughs> why a teaching series on engaging film theologically? What, you might ask, do movies have to do with a Sunday gathering? Well, in considering this question, we want to ask you uh, a few things. A few other things first. Uh, what does film do to us? What is our relationship to it? What, how does film affect us? And what does that have to do with our relationship with God? Well, we were preparing this sermon. Nelson directed us to a man named Brian Stone, who points out that in Matthew 16.3, Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day, of his time, because they did not know how to read the signs of the time. They knew their scriptures inside out, but they couldn't interpret the world around them. They're here and now. Stone writes, they failed to understand that history is itself a kind of text, and that it is as important to understand the human predicament as it is to understand the word of God addressed to that predicament. He goes on to say that what is especially needed within the Christian movement today is vigorous and sustained thinking about both the gospel and the world, about scripture and human existence, about text and context. When we read the Bible but aren't able to read the world, he says, we risk reducing the gospel to either a weapon or a toy. He's suggesting we either deaden scripture or make it deadening. But when read alongside the world, both informed by and informing it, the life of scripture takes root in our lives in living and active ways. Yeah, and from this perspective, then film and television can be a source of revelation about both ourselves and our world. Film reveals the world around us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it also contributes to that same world's formation. Who we are is reflected back at us on the big or little screen, but who we are is also shaped by that screen and by what we see there. We don't want to engage our screens mindlessly then if both if, if they are both, A, places that tell us about the world in which we live, and B, sites of formation. So, throughout this series, throughout the next three weeks, we want to ask, how might thoughtful, theologically informed dialogue with contemporary films better equip us to, read, to both read and respond to our culture with the wisdom, compassion, and power of the gospel? And before we dive into that question, I'd just like to take a minute and pray. So would you just join me for a moment in prayer? God, thank you that you speak to us through your world, through the things that other people create in this world, uh, through film, and ask that you would give us eyes to see uh, what you might have to say to us today through uh, Ratatouille. 
and uh, that you would also uh, just help both Matt and I to uh, communicate in a way that honors you. Amen. So that question is uh, fun, maybe somewhat long, uh, an important question to chew on. Uh, in particular because movies, it seems, are perfect for this kind of reflection. French Catholic critic André Bazin um, once argued that cinema facilitates a unique encounter with the world since it captures the world according to its own image. Whereas a painting might represent reality with brushstrokes, a camera literally records it. Though, granted, there are a, a ton of, of course, choices made in how to record uh, and represent that reality, choices like framing and editing and all those artistic touches. But Bazin would say, and I'm inclined to agree, that film is an art form that has great potential as it uniquely bears witness to the reality of our world, all its suffering and all its beauty. So why then are we going to this morning talk about a computer animated rat who can cook? <laughs> great <be> question. <laughs> um, if you are or were suspicious about the movie Ratatouille and its potential to meaningfully reflect ourselves and our world, don't worry, you're not alone. I was once there. I get that. Um, when Matt and I first started dating, uh, we were messaging back and forth, he in Edmonton and me here in Vancouver, and we started talking about movies. I asked Matt for his uh, top five favorite films of all time, and let me tell you, I was expecting some high art in reply. And so in a very self-conscious bid to impress Blythe with my self-consciously excellent taste, um, I sent her a top five to end all top fives. Number one, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. Number two, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master. Number three, Spike Jones's Being John Malkovich. Number four, Brad Bird's Ratatouille. Number five, Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation. <laughs> Blythe, how did, how did you uh, respond? Uh, on January 22nd, uh, 2014, at 7.10 p.m., I wrote, I am so, so confused by your inclu inclusion of Ratatouille. What? Thus far, your taste has proved flawless, so I'll rest assured you have a good reason for loving a movie about a rodent cook yeah. starring Nathan Lane? No. That's Ratatouille, right? Minutes later, after Googling Ratatouille, I sent a follow-up note. Oh, no, Nathan Lane is not in Ratatouille. He's not. I confused the 1997 comedy Mouse Hunt with Ratatouille, and this probably offends you. Send. It did. It did offend me. So uh, that, yes, that indeed is the VHS cover of a not great, it's fine, 90s comedy starring Nathan Lane. Uh, this next, yeah, that's Ratatouille. Um, so two hours after Blythe sent the message, I wrote back, exasperated, and said, have you not seen it? I, I don't know how to respond to your reductive assessment. Oh, okay. There are a number of reasons for loving Ratatouille, though I'll admit it suffers sometimes under certain pretensions and oh, some overwriting. But it's a great movie that at its core is about art and craftsmanship. 
Its animation style is beautiful and warm. It has a great voice performance from Patton Oswalt. It contains a very moving bit about the connection between food and people, and as well as about art and people. There's, it's a great movie. Do you not like animation? Or are you just averse to talking animals? Keep in mind, I was still trying like really hard to, rather scrambling at this point to impress her, um, which is why I kind of sound a bit like a turd. And I was still suspicious about the movie. Um, but I eventually watched it, and I saw that actually Matt was right. It is a great film. And today, we hope to shed some insight into why we love this animated, maybe kids movie, explaining what Ratatouille can say to us today, here, and now. And in doing so, we hope to explore how, as Christ's followers, we might thoughtfully engage any film at all. So, for those of you who were unable to make the screening last Tuesday or who maybe haven't had the chance to watch this movie, um, we want to get us all on the same page a little bit. So, for your viewing pleasure, here is the trailer. And hopefully it works. Hopefully. Oh, there we go. Ah, Paris, France. Home of the finest restaurants and the greatest chefs in the world. All my life, I've wanted to be one of them. You may think that's a strange dream for a rat, but I've always believed that with hard work and a little luck, it's only a matter of time before I'm discovered. What would happen if anyone knew we are the rats in our kitchen? Go! Take it away from here, garbage boy! Don't look at me like that! You're the one who was getting fancy with the spices! I need this job. I've lost so many. I don't know how to cook, and now I'm actually talking to a rat as if you... Did you not? You understand me? I can't cook, but you can, right? Look, don't be so modest. You're a rat for Pete's sake. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? We just need to work out a system so that I do what you want. Stop that! Stop what? Clicking me out! Ooh. I want to make things, Dad. Stay away from the humans. It's dangerous. Now shut up and eat your garbage. Oh! <laughs> How did you do that? Just once in a lifetime. Let's do this thing! Man knows a moment. You gotta taste this! You detect that? An oaky nuttiness? Oh, I'm detecting nuttiness. We hate to be rude, but we're friends. I have a secret. I have a rat. Do you have a rush? She's toying with my mind, taunting me with that rat. As though I had Together, we can be the greatest chef in Paris. Ratatouille? You're in Paris now, baby. My town. Hey. <laughs> so, 
common misunderstanding, which the trailer doesn't really clear up, so I want to. Ratatouille is not the name of the rat. Uh, his name is Remy, and yes, he is a rat with a highly developed palate, and that gets him into trouble. <laughs> One day, uh, the tiny foodie is separated from his garbage-eating family with nothing but his favorite cookbook for company, a book called Anyone Can Cook. So as you saw, Remy eventually ends up living and secretly working uh, in the kitchen of a famous Parisian restaurant called Gustos. Uh, yeah, that's it. He teams up with the garbage boy, and together they make a gifted cook. Their soup is a hit, and soon the garbage boy, whose name is Linguini, rises to the top. Now, this restaurant used to be Paris's best, but after a poor review by this guy, Anton Ego, the film's sort of big bad, its ratings sink. When Anton Ego discovers that Gusto's has a hot new chef, he decides to visit with a single goal, take them down. He walks in, he's all disdain and criticism, and he arrives and orders whatever the chef dares to serve. So, Remy's little paws get cooking. He decides to make ratatouille, which, which another character reminds us is just a peasant dish. But when Anton Ego takes his first bite, his mind is blown. Everyone then lives happily ever after. And we all feel nice things as the credits roll. And I think that is why uh, a lot of people watch movies, to feel nice things, or maybe to be distracted or entertained. Uh, as our sister-in-law, Ruth, says, I don't want to be sad when I watch a movie. But what if we expected something else from our films? Ben, you don't want to feel sad? <laughs> what if we ask what the film, even the animated one, says about our world, both its beauty and its injustice? Or as critic Jeffrey Overstreet says, what if we ask, what does this movie love? That might feel like a funny question, but I think it's a profound question to bring to art. The subtext of this question is, what is this film asking me to love too? Is there a virtue, a character, a value that this film loves that I might benefit from loving too? Or maybe is this film absent of something, perhaps justice or goodness, something whose absence highlights our world's need. Ratatouille, as a film, loves a lot. Arguably, there could be three sermons on it. But shockingly, Nelson and Scott did not go for a sermon series called Faith and Ratatouille, so we'll do our best this morning. The first thing this film loves is those without power those who are deemed less than by their world for whatever reason. Remy is an outcast. He's treated poorly by both humans and his rat family, who groan at what they deem to be snobbery, when really, Remy just genuinely loves food and flavors and making new things from both. We also see class elitism and how the awkward garbage boy, Linguini, is deemed worthless. And we see injustice when Colette is constantly blocked from rising in the kitchen world because, as she tells Linguini, haute cuisine is an antiquated hierarchy built upon rules written by men, rules designed to make it impossible for women to enter this world. 
Finally, we see it in the surprise and shock at Remy's choice of ratatouille as the final dish to serve Anton Ego, the critic. Why, after all, would you serve a peasant dish to someone of his prestige, someone like Ego? This film loves these characters and grieves when they're overlooked for their species, skills, or sex and gender. This film also loves art. Yes, this is a film about food, but on a deeper level, Ratatouille is a film about film. It's about creating and engaging the creative arts. As Colette tours Linguini around the kitchen, introducing him to their ragtag team of cooks, she says, and pardon the terrible accent, people think haute cuisine is snooty, so chef must also be snooty, but we are not snooty. We are artists, pirates. More than cooks are we. Remy, too, is an artist. It's why he loves humans. I know I'm supposed to hate humans, he says, but there is just something about them. They don't just survive. They discover, they create. I mean, just look at what they do with food. At this point in the film, we get our first, one of our first great scenes where food is art and art's potential is highlighted. And we're gonna take a look at that scene. Oh, Gusteau was right. Oh, mm, yeah. Oh, amazing. Each flavor was totally unique. But combine one flavor with another, and something new was created. Here we see what art can do whether it's making it or engaging it. Combine two things unlike each other to make something new and bam. Film itself does just this, taking one image to collide it with another and create new meaning. As the painter layers paint, so the poet layers words, the cook layers flavors, and the filmmaker layers scenes, action, music, staging, composition, and so on. And as we see in another scene, when Remy pairs a mushroom with some cheese and tries to cook it on top of the roof, there's something explosive, or as his brother describes it, something lightning-y about this small act of creation. Yeah, so it's a movie about art. Uh, but how does noticing that engage things, the film, theologically? That's probably an unnecessary question maybe in this church. We're a community that often discusses the value of art and creation and the renewal of all things. But it's worth exploring again in the context of faith and film. Art bears witness to humanity, to the world, and in doing so, it can direct us to consider beauty, another thing we discuss here often. Ratatouille is saturated with an attention to beauty. In an address to artists in uh, 2009, Pope Benedict XVI wrote a speech emphasizing the importance of beauty for the life of the Christian, but also for the life of the world itself. Genuine beauty, he says, gives a person a healthy shock. Pope Benedict continues to say that beauty draws humans out of themselves, wrenching us away from resignation and from being content with the humdrum. It even makes us suffer, piercing us like a dart, but in so doing, it reawakens opening afresh the eyes of our heart and mind, giving us wings, carrying us aloft. 
let's be clear here. We want a wide definition of beauty. Beauty is not just that which looks nice or upholds some specific aesthetic standard. A sad, grayscale movie shot on a shaky handycam can be beautiful. Sure, there's beauty in an art gallery, but also in alleys and messy rooms and snotty kids. Bleak films that attest to suffering are often beautiful. Elsewhere, Pope Benedict describes beauty as something that disturbs. There's a writer that Matt and I both love named Elaine Scarry, who wrote a book called On Beauty and Being Just. In it, Scarry says that there's a connection between encountering beauty and being shaped towards being more just. Beauty is a call, she says. It directs our attention to what's there and what should be there. She writes, at the moment we see something beautiful, we undergo a radical decentering. Beauty requires us to give up our imaginary position as the center. We're so inundated with images today, both beautiful and otherwise, that I wonder how often I whiz past something beautiful without really letting it sink in, without giving it my whole attention, somehow not letting it actually reshape my core true self. Skari continues. She says, when we come upon beautiful things, the tiny mauve orange blue moth on the brick, a cake, a sentence, they act like small tears in the surface of the world that pull us through to some vaster space. Or they, these beautiful things, lift us as though by the air currents of someone else's sweeping letting the ground rotate beneath us several inches so that when we land, we find we are standing in different relation to the world than we were a moment before. Beauty can transform us. Whether it's the small everyday nature of slow formation or a big astounding revelation that alters our thinking in radical ways. In Ratatouille, this is most obvious in uh, what we like to call the conversion of Anton Ego. Throughout the film, Anton has been harsh, controlling, critical. He's all judgment, haughty eyebrows, uh, teeth, large teeth. And the film points this out, animating him in like this cloud of death almost. Uh, his typewriter is a skull, like it looks like a skull. Uh, both his office and body, as you can see, is sort of shaped almost like a coffin. And his face has this vampiric look. You know, he's death embodied. But when Anton encounters beauty, something shifts. And so we're going to watch a clip in the next slide. Ratatouille? They must be joking.
I can never get over how good the food looks in this movie. And after I first watched it in 2007, I tried to make it and it didn't quite look the same. Um, Remy gets some very thinly sliced uh, vegetables. I, it, it's probably his tiny little rat hands. Um, maybe if I shrunk my... No. I think he's actually just using something called a mandolin. Oh, but like we the can, instrument. No, yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> uh, here in this clip, we see the conversion of Anton Ego. Um, Anton, once dead in his judgment, remembers a time in his life before his criticism had calcified. He's shocked by the beauty of his dinner, something so simple, so far from classist, so attentively crafted. And he's drawn out of his judgment and disdain. Did you notice how his pen, uh, the weapon that he uses to take down chefs with his critical reviews, uh, just drops to the floor? He becomes disarmed and reawakens to beauty with new eyes, able to see it in places and people he was judging before. Our lives and our world desperately needs this kind of encounter with beauty. And this scene shows, or maybe it hopes, that what Skari says is true, that beauty does change us. I'd suggest that yes, this is true, and maybe beauty changes us because it's an extension of God. Anton's encounter with beauty uh, and his related conversion <laughs> is so reminiscent of another story, uh, the story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. So if you will, please turn with us to Acts chapter 9, which is page 765 in your chair Bibles. So, Chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. The word of the Lord. So Paul, or rather Saul, at this point, is in the same position as Anton. He's persecuting Christ's early followers, destroying lives like Anton destroyed chefs' reputations, when Jesus intervenes with light and life. There's a long tradition of thinking of Christ as capital B Beauty. Our faith is somewhat rooted in the development of Greek philosophy and thinking. And many of these early Greek philosophers uh, were interested in the pursuit of what's called the three transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, the true. 
goodness, beauty, truth. They believed that the divine was the ultimate form of these things. God was the capital G good, the beautiful, the true. All earthly expressions of goodness, beauty, and truth were connected to the divine, albeit in Greek thinking somewhat shadows of it. So when Christianity took root in this culture, many thinkers and writers metabolized this philosophy or parts of it, saying, goodness, beauty, truth? Yeah, that is the God that we know too. So some might say that when Saul sees the light of Christ, he is gazing at beauty unfiltered in its purest form. And it blinds him. But it also changes him. So let's keep reading. Um, Again, page 765, starting at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul sees beauty in the purest way he can. And it shakes, disturbs, and reorients him. Afterwards, he sees more clearly than ever, realizing the beauty that holds all things together. This beauty, to use Elaine Scarry's words, unselfs him. Scarry writes, Beauty brings about an unselfing. It is not just that we become self-forgetting, but that some more capacious mental act is possible. All the space formerly in the service of protecting, guarding, advancing the self or its prestige is now free to be in the service of something else. Capacious, by the way, just means spacious. Uh, I know you all knew that, um, but I had to look it up, so I just wanted to tell you I learned a new word. Capacious. Spacious. Uh, Doesn't Scarry perfectly describe both Paul and Anton's conversions. Both Paul and Anton are completely unselfed, transformed, and freed to be in the service of something or someone else. Paul serves the early church. Anton sees the value of people he formerly formerly disdained, and he ends up opening a restaurant with them. Uh, I guess that's kind of a spoiler if you haven't seen it. Anton, Remy, Colette, and Linguini open a restaurant together, and that is how the movie ends. It's called Ratatouille. 
The, the restaurant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's easy to imagine why the early church thought God was capital B beauty. The Bible is littered with beautiful things, poetry, visions, prophecies, parables, songs. And throughout his ministry, Jesus highlights both the world's beauty and the absence of beauty in the world, and maybe its need for it. A few months ago, Lance told us about Jesus being anointed at Bethany, where one of his followers douses him with very expensive perfume. When she's chastised for wasting both the perfume and the money, Jesus defends her. She's done a beautiful thing to me, he says. A beautiful thing. Another English Bible translates this verse as follows. She's done a good deed to me. That's because the Greek word there, the word kalon, holds both meanings in it, suggesting that maybe beauty and goodness aren't so different after all. The root word of kalon, kalos, means beautiful, good, virtuous, worthy. It fuses these things together. And in the, Greek, or in the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, its writers chose this word, kalos, in their translation of the creation account, where God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Alternatively put, then, we could read Genesis 1.31 as saying in its subtext, God saw all that he had made, and it was very beautiful. And finally, this word, kalos, is a word that we might use to describe Jesus himself. In John 10, 11, Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. He is also, I think, the beautiful shepherd. In scripture, there is beauty in goodness and goodness in beauty. As Anton's conversion might suggest, this idea is present through Ratatouille, too. The pursuit of beauty, goodness, and truth fills the plot. We see this in Remy, who's obsessed with obtaining his ingredients honestly. He doesn't like to steal food, perhaps knowing his creation will lose some of its beauty if not made with honest, justly obtained groceries. He connects theft with disrespect and seems convicted that his art must come from a place of respect, respect for what he uses to create and even more so respect for others. I just want to flesh out this word kalos a little bit more because I think sometimes the word good in our world uh, has maybe lost some of its meaning. I think good today is often too tied to performance. You know, she's good, he's not. She's good at her job, I'm not. That is an anemic understanding of the goodness that kalos describes and implies. So just a few more English words uh, used to define callous in addition to good and beautiful. I won't read them all, but there's also precious, true, whole. Remy, in pursuit of beauty and therefore goodness, is also pursuing something true. Maybe he's even looking for something whole. And that's the Christian pursuit too, beauty. Goodness, truth, ultimately all found in the whole life of God. Okay, so we don't know if Brad Bird was thinking about any of this when he wrote and directed the movie. He probably was, though, right? 
right? I mean, I mean, probably not. Uh, but that's okay, because art can have a life beyond the intent of the artist. We see this in the film itself. Remy, the artist cook, chef, had no intention of sending Anton back into his childhood, but Remy's artistic creation has that effect. It creates space for an encounter between Anton and the beauty of Remy's dish. And Anton fills in his side of the encounter with his own lived experience. Brad Bird might not have created a film thinking that it would reorient its viewers to God, but honestly, when we first watched it, we couldn't stop thinking about the beauty of this world, and therefore, we couldn't stop thinking of the beauty of its creator. We're sure you've heard this language lots before. It's, it's not our own, but we think of beauty as not shadows, like some of the earlier thinkers did, but rather we think of beauty on this earth as a signpost. Beauty is tethered in some way to the kingdom of heaven, a stamp of the creator who made this place, and a reminder of his persistent presence in it. Pope Benedict again says, the way of beauty leads us then to grasp the whole in the fragment, the infinite in the finite, God in the history of humanity. Beauty can become a path towards the transcendent, towards the ultimate mystery, towards God. The reality is most of us have not had a mystical experience quite like Paul's. And while I hope you get to experience something beautiful in a way that changes you, whether food or otherwise, I doubt many of us will have an encounter as radical as Anton's. But while we won't have these big, momentous, life-altering encounters with beauty, there are ways to seek beauty that are smaller, more ordinary, more everyday. Remy seems to pursue beauty in small ways, too, building it into his daily life and rhythms. Here he is, uh, doing what many of us might do on a sunny day at Crab Park, watching the sunset. Um, if you just imagine some construction cranes in lieu of the Eiffel Tower, I think it's pretty much the same thing. Same thing. <laughs> and while we can hope for what Anton and Paul experienced, we are more likely, I think, to experience the slow transforming effect of everyday beauty in ordinary, subtle ways. It's a habit to develop this attention to beauty, and it might come more naturally to some than others. But what if it's a critical habit for all of us to hone? What if an awareness to beauty is, an aw is a way to express love to our creator and in turn a way to receive a sense of God's love for us too? As Greta Gerwig writes in the script of her movie Lady Bird, which I know some of you have seen, what if love and attention are the same thing? But, but sometimes, as we said, it's not easy to see ordinary beauty. And it feels difficult to talk about beauty when there's so much violence in our world, especially the past few weeks. We think here of the recent shootings in Norway, El Paso, California, Ohio, northern BC, of the random act of hate in the Tate Modern last week, which hospitalized a six-year-old now in critical condition. 
And it's hard to know what to do with that at first, other than just be angry and sad. Do conversations about beauty have a place in this seeming dumpster fire of a world? Isn't it petty to take a whole morning to discuss beauty in light of all this suffering? Is there a role for it at all? And we hope so. <laughs> but even in the communities affected by the hate, the racism, prejudice uh, of these recent shootings, there is somehow beauty. It's not in the violence, obviously, but the responses to it. There's goodness and beauty in the way groups in El Paso, after the shooting, linked arms at a makeshift memorial and prayed for love, hope, justice, all the while grieving. Terrible loss. That felt beautiful because it was good. Or in the way Brielle Beardy Linklater, a two-spirit advocate, comforted a scared community in northern Manitoba where two shooters were thought to be hiding in the woods. She hosted a very simple evening of healing and prayer, and I found that really beautiful, again, because there was goodness in this act. Acknowledging the goodness and the beauty in these hurting communities' responses does not in any way take away from how tragic and senseless the violence was. But choosing to contemplate beauty, even in light of violence, can critically redirect us to a different path, and maybe the world as well. Because it can stop us from responding to violence with more violence, helping instead bring an awareness of God's presence in the world. It might feel very trite to talk about the kingdom of heaven in the shape of a leaf, or a well-marinated vegetable, or even in art, given all the injustice and all the violence. And I get that. But what if it's vital to be beauty-seeking people? Because what if, in paying attention to beauty in this world, we're also training ourselves to see the beauty in each other? There's a critical scene in Ratatouille, and it was actually in the trailer briefly, when Linguini is tasked by his coworkers to kill Remy. He takes him to the river, plans to drown him, I guess, in a jar. But as he looks at him, he sees Remy's face. It's an adorable little rat face. And says, don't look at me like that. Staring at Remy, really looking at him in the eye, otherness is seen anew. Not as something bad, but as something humbling, a sign of beauty. So we're going to try something. <laughs> if you're comfortable with it, find a face to look at. Anywhere, next to you or across the room, ideally you're able to make eye contact um, with someone looking back at you, but that might be hard to coordinate given a giant room. Um, so if you're looking at someone who's looking elsewhere, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's going to be intense. Choose anyone, someone you've had difficulty with maybe, or, or your favorite person in the whole world or room, and try with everything in you, somehow, to think about their God-given beauty and goodness, to see that they are a creature made in the image of God. And we're going to hold this for a few more seconds, more than feels comfortable. Keep holding. 
seeing someone's face, really seeing it, it recommends their humanity and their value. It can unself us, causing us to create space for that other's humanity. Keep, tra- keep going. <laughs> okay, you, you, can, you can stop if you want to. I mean, if you don't want to. Thank you, by the way. The face of the other. If we really see it with an attention for God's image in the other, we hopefully see their value, and ideally we want justice and love for them, not violence. And films can facilitate this kind of encounter with another. This may sound bold, but... I think more than in any other art form, perhaps cinema with its, with its close-ups, its powerful close-ups in, in time, in real time, can engage us in contemplating the beauty and goodness of another human, even a fictional one. <laughs> Hopefully, creating space for empathy as we behold the face of another. This, of course, can go wrong. We've learned throughout history that people can objectify faces in ways that limit the other's humanity. Laura Mulvey coined the term uh, male gaze for this very purpose, to describe how film has historically limited women to roles in which they're objectified on screen for their, what she calls, to-be-looked-at-ness. Fine art, too, has a horrible history of this. But again, that's not the fault of beauty. We must choose, actively choose, not to objectify or destroy the beautiful. In looking at a face's beauty, without the aim of controlling it, you aim to recognize the whole of the person, the inherent value of someone created in the image of God, to see that it is good, to be shaken out of yourself, out of your desire to consume. The human face, because it bears the image of God, has the potential to unself us into the life of God, if we let it. If we look at another face and want to destroy it, well, then we're not representing the God who offers freedom, love, justice. And as Colette says in Ratatouille, how can we claim to represent the name of Gusteau if we don't uphold his most cherished belief? So for us, since we're not animated characters. For us, how can we claim to represent our creator if we don't recognize his beauty in others? The face is, though, of course, just one example. Um, An old, long-dead poet with an old, long-dead poet's name, Gerard Manley Hopkins, uh, wrote that the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It's saturated with beauty, he's saying, if we have eyes to see it. To see it in each other, to see it in creation, in back alleys, in artisan kids' classes, in meals both messy and fine. And maybe attending to beauty, though, doesn't feel so simple for you. Maybe the possibility of beauty feels limited. That's fine, obviously. (laughs) Eventually, though, I think you will encounter beauty. And perhaps unsurprisingly, it won't force 
you to notice it. Like the Christ, it signifies. Beauty invites, but doesn't coerce. But I do hope we give it our attention. Because the world needs more transformed people moving towards justice. And if anything we've been saying today is true, that justice is connected to beauty. After his conversion, Anton changes his ways. Paul goes out and spreads the gospel to Gentile populations. The beauty that we're talking about here today is the kind that enacts us. It galvanizes us into joyous responsibility, into the duplication of beauty in our very way of life. But again, it's ultimately our choice. Anton could have commodified his beautiful meal somehow, maybe profiting from a ratatouille fast food chain or something, or when he finds out his chef is the lowest of lows, a rat, he could have torn the restaurant to shreds to save his own reputation. But instead, he gives up his status, writing a review so positive that he loses his highly esteemed position as France's most prestigious food critic. And in giving that up, he moves towards justice, supporting three cooks who lack power because of their species, resume, and sex and gender. Anton's review empowers these three in the cooking world so that at the end of the movie, Linguini, Colette, and Remy become in some ways Anton's equals. There's some serious social leveling here, and it's all because Anton lets himself be reshaped by beauty. And Paul, too. Could have said he imagined it all, maybe. Uh, blinded by the sun, trick of the light. Heat exhaustion, maybe, a mirage. Maybe he should have just been wearing sunglasses. Instead, he goes out to the house of a former enemy, vulnerable, in need of Ananias' help. Part of his conversion, too, is seeing the other anew, without violence, without hate, as a brother. We can always explain beauty away. A sunset's just a sunset. The way water crests in a wave is just molecules bubbling up, and so on. But if we allow it to be what it truly is, what's undergirding it, if we recognize its capital B, beauty, then transformation can follow. This next image is uh, a scene from a movie called The Thin Red Line. You may remember it from Matt's top five favorite films. After watching horrific bloodshed and battle, we, the viewer, see this, the final shot. Here, the camera rests on a single palm coming up from the Pacific Ocean, a space that holds so many soldiers' bodies, bodies from both sides who've been fighting in this war. This scene is Terrence Malick's love letter to the hope that beauty holds amidst inexplicable suffering. The scene holds hope because it points to beauty, life, God, suggesting that all these will win out over suffering eventually. The scene embodies Psalm 27 when David, aware of his war-torn life, seeks beauty. In verse 4, David cries out, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And David goes on to seek and search for God's 
beauty amidst trouble. And ultimately ends his psalm by saying in verses 13 to 14, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so we wait and hope and seek and look. And what if waiting and looking are closer than they sound? If you're feeling tired, which is fair, uh, (laughs) or unsure, while your participation, maybe it just is a certain kind of attention on your walk home. In attending, you might, you might just bear witness to God's kingdom without knowing or even believing in it. And it might work on you in some small, unassuming way so that the kingdom of justice, love, hope becomes clearer to you every day. And that's what we need. We need people who can see the kingdom with wide imaginations for its presence in our neighborhoods and in each other. And that's what we hope for us. We hope that as a community, our approach to film might look something like Simone Weil's approach to art. When she writes, in all that awakens within us, the pure and authentic sentiment of beauty, there truly is the presence of God. There is a kind of incarnation of God in the world of which beauty is the sign. Beauty is the experimental proof that incarnation is possible. So, may we attend beauty in art and in each other and see the beautiful one who who permeates this whole world, recognizing both where he is and perhaps even more so where his beauty ought to be reproduced, ought to be ushered in. And what better way to acknowledge the beauty that saturates our world than to see its transcendence in seemingly everyday objects like bread and wine. With that, let's move into the table. So I think we'll invite someone up to move us.